0: Welcome to the Mouthy IP Podcast, where we discuss infection prevention for the busy dental professional. The Mouthy IP Podcast is created by Nebraska ICAP, Infection Control Assessment and Promotion Program, and is funded by the Nebraska DHHS HAI team via a CDC grant. Each podcast features experts discussing current infection prevention topics and answers to questions asked by dental professionals from Nebraska. Welcome to the latest episode of the Mouthy IP. We've taken a a brief hiatus while Omicron raged through the the U.S., and we're uh, happy to be back. Today, we have our standard list of contributors, uh, the awesome Sarah Stream, Kate Tyner, and Dr. Richard Hankins. My name is Dan German, and I'll be the moderator. Welcome. Thanks,
1: Dan. So we got, yeah, we got a really great question today. So I am going to go ahead and play that for everybody. Hi, Nebraska ICAP. I was recently put in charge of managing the water lines for my office. Can you please help me understand how I take care of them and what I need to do for testing? So this question has to do with dental unit water lines, which is a topic that I am really passionate about. So I think we should just dig right into this.
0: Can I ask a quick question though, Sarah, as we start off on this. So was this individual, is this person lucky to be selected to do this? Or was this person like uh, drawing the short straw? (laughs) Which side of the luck spectrum is this individual?
1: So that that really depends on how well the water lines have been maintained in the past. It could be a very easy transition if they've been maintained well. It could get a little let's say slimy <laughs> if if they have so, not been maintained well.
0: <laughs> so I'm what I'm hearing is it's a great opportunity to improve upon a process to make a difference. Absolutely.
1: And it's another great skill set that you can add to your resume. You know, you know how to maintain dental unit water lines. It's very important in the practice.
2: Very important practice. And so maybe we could set the stage. When I was thinking about dental unit water lines, I was thinking to myself, the swirly bowls in the dentist's office of the eighties are no longer, we don't see those anymore. And so, Waterline maintenance has a lot to do with that. We found out the swirly bowl was not at all very safe.
1: Correct. Well, so the swirly bowl is—it's called a cuspidor. If you want some Jeopardy knowledge there, um, that actually has to do with their evacuation system and not the water lines
2: themselves. So it's a different system. It's a different system, and so we no longer the running water. In the operatory is now limited to the sink, just city water, and usually to a, a individual bottle on the chair somehow, that the bottle is disinfected and the water inside should be disinfected so that the water that is going into the patient's mouth during the procedure is at a very high standard of cleanliness, correct? Yes. Okay. And just for clarity's sake, the water that's coming out of that dental unit water line would be for maintenance procedures, not for surgical procedures. Am I right? Right. So for surgical, sterile.
1: If if it's like a simple surgery, a simple extraction, that would be one thing. Um, But if you're doing a surgical extraction or some sort of periodontal surgery, then you would want to use the sterile
2: water. Absolutely. So any of our listeners who were waiting for sterile water They can tune out now that's not what we're talking about today but that is a great topic for a future episode for a future episode okay
3: that is really that is a good point kate as we're like deciphering those i always think of like surgery versus procedures i guess i use the term procedures rather than surgery
2: and so the water standards that we use in the chair for procedures it's the same Expectation of cleanliness as potable or drinking water, right? And that is equal to or less than 500 CFUs per ml in the water. Yes. Dr. Hankins, do you want to break down CFUs for the listeners?
3: Yeah, CFUs is a colony forming unit. So we look at bacteria on a, a blood auger plate. You'd be looking at how much bacteria in one ml or one centimeter cubed, could you grow um, in that, in that amount? And so these are things that we look at in the microbiology lab in an auger plate after you incubate it for 48 hours.
2: And I don't want to do too much talking, but when I was getting ready for the episode, something that I was thinking of is if the potable water standard is the same as the standard that we would apply for the chair, they're the same. Why do we go to extra lengths to disinfect that water? And so I think there's some really important things we should touch on, things that affect water quality. So things off the top of my head that I know affect water quality, right, would be debris in the water that could contaminate it. Um, How long the water sits in the pipe until it reaches the person who is either drinking it or getting it in their mouth for a procedure. That's a big deal because we use chemicals to disinfect the water and those chemicals degrade over time. So even though the water that maybe entered the practice was at the right level of chlorination, had the appropriate level of less than 500 CFUs per ml, by the time it gets to the chair and sits in the pipe, we might not have that level of chlorination any longer. The other thing that affects it is ambient temperature, right? Water at higher temperatures, especially like that 70 to 90 degree range are, um, unfortunately, that's the danger zone and we can have bad things like Legionella. Grow in our pipes and so since we have to account for all those 70 to 90 degrees is how te- the temperature we like it it's comfortable for us as humans to be operating in that environment so because of all those things we have to take extra steps to essentially re-disinfect the water that enters people's mouth during the procedure. Absolutely. So I think if you were a dental assistant and this was your job it would be very important that the people you train understand why we do the steps we do. I think as people who have done infection prevention for a long time, that's the number one thing. Why do we do what we do? So that people feel compelled to complete the steps and not take shortcuts.
1: Yeah, and I think another thing to point out is what can go wrong if you don't do what you need to do? So with dental unit water lines, The tubing in our dental units is so small that that water sits in there and it increases the surface area that is wet in those tubes, right? And that gives us what's called biofilm. So biofilm is like this slimy layer of bacterial growth inside
2: those water lines. (laughs) I was confused if the word you said was bacterial gross or bacterial growth gross I liked it that it was yes. bacterial gross it is it is gross yes very
0: interchangeable gross. yes mm-hmm.
1: synonymous um, okay. dr. Hankins would you like to talk a little bit about like what types of stuff can grow in biofilms
3: uh, yeah sure um, in terms of like what what can grow in biofilm I I think lots of organisms can grow on biofilm. Bacteria, mycobacteria um, can grow on biofilm. Um, as we're talking about this, I, I I almost think that we're you're thinking about it uh, like cart before the horse. like you ask what grows in biofilm, but I'm really thinking of, well, what produces biofilm? Um, Because I think of biofilm more as a product of certain bacteria, certain organisms. It's a protein, um, polysaccharide lipid product, like a medium that um, these organisms make to provide a more stable environment for itself. Um, I think the classic organism that we always think of producing a biofilm is Pseudomonas. Pseudomonas produces a very thick biofilm, um, which provides stability for the organism, makes it harder for us to to rid the organism out of certain areas. Um, And so Pseudomonas, um, as Kate touched on, Legionella, um, and then certain mycobacterium, uh, non-tuberculous mycobacterium can do this as well. And so I think of these organisms make biofilms. And so when these organisms are in water lines and they make these biofilms, it makes it harder for us to treat, to get them out of the water lines. Um, And so that's how I would would be thinking about this.
2: Maybe I could add to what you're saying, Dr. Hankins. When I think about biofilm, I think about essentially the bacteria themselves have made a shield, right? To protect them from an antibiotic, um, a chemical in the water, things like that, that maybe the bacteria on the surface of the biofilm are having contact with your chemical disinfectant, like chlorine in this case, but those underneath the biofilm have no contact with your chemical disinfectant anymore. And so I think when we think about biofilm, it's really important that we prevent bacteria from getting into the pipe because biofilm is really difficult to remove once it's in place. And so you think about, um, you know, your residual disinfectant is how we keep our water clear of most bacteria, et cetera. But if you're at the point where your pipes are definitely contaminated, we're talking about a very different mitigation, um, whether that's with very, very hot water turbulence or, um, a different higher amount of chemicals that will actually remove the biofilm. And so, um, I think biofilm it's interesting to pe- cause I think people can picture that being a problem. We should prevent that. Right, and that's why it makes sense to be very diligent and follow directions about the disinfection that's occurring on a regular basis. Absolutely.
1: And then when we, if we get biofilm that starts to grow in our dental unit water lines, what can happen is it will will continue to increase, right? That bacteria continues to grow and eventually it gets big enough that pieces start to break off and they travel through the water line, and then they end up where we don't want them, right? Um, I know I sent Dr. Hankins some information on an outbreak in California that I believe was 2016. There was a pediatric office that had an outbreak. Um, a, A whole bunch of kids got sick because they weren't maintaining their water lines. So. There is a possibility that this can go wrong very quickly if you don't manage them well.
3: Yeah, that outbreak was specifically Mycobacterium obsessus, and Mycobacterium obsessus is a very serious organism, um, but difficult to treat, and uh, quite virulent, so... Uh, very important for uh, offices to to treat the water lines because i think that that's a uh, great example of what we would not want to occur.
2: Will the article be like a link to that be part of the show notes? Yeah. I think that's it. Like I'm I'm a person who learns well from um do this don't do that. And so i think that that would be um especially if you're trying to teach people in your own practice it's a it's definitely a way to reach some learners of this is the worst possible outcome. Um, And so when we talk about prevention, let's talk about the types of prevention um, apparatus, apparati that are on the market, Sarah. What can you tell us?
1: Sure. So with prevention of dental unit water lines, our main way of preventing that biofilm growth is going to be that chemical disinfection of the water. So we're treating the water before it's in the lines so it doesn't have the opportunity to grow biofilm. So a really common way to do that is a tablet disinfectant. So anytime you refill those bottles, you will put a chemical tablet in the bottle, fill it up with water, make sure it's dissolved completely, and then that treats your water So it's disinfected, but it's still safe to use with humans.
2: Okay. So I know um, when I was in the field doing infection control assessments and dental practices, the tablet method was very new to me as a more hospital-based infection preventionist. And so um, I was naive to it to the point of like, can I please look at the instructions for use? And so um, what I learned from doing that is the instructions vary certainly by company and can be a little bit complex, such as um, we were talking to an assistant in one practice. She said, when I was trained, I was trained we have to heat the water in the bottle for 30 seconds in the microwave before we dissolve our tablet. I don't see people doing that anymore and I wonder why. And so if you were taking over the disinfection program at, the office, I think it would be very important to look first at what what is the process that is meant to be used, right? Don't make any assumptions. do Not based on how you were trained. Go back to your booklet, your instructions for use, to understand what must occur. And so does that match what you see in practice? Kind of walk around, look at what people are doing, and where do we need to do some re-education? And so that part, um, dissolving totally in the water is really important. The heat part was like, well, that sounds kind of different. And is it that we have to get it to a certain temperature or that we have to use a certain number of seconds? So I think if I was in charge of that program, that would definitely be something I would want to be certain about and make sure the people I trained were also very certain about.
1: Yeah. Another common, I guess, mistake that I see is, you know, those tablets are metered right? So there's a certain amount of chemical that you're supposed to mix with a certain amount of water. So if you're refilling those bottles and you have a little bit left in the bottom, you have to dump that to mix a new batch, right? You don't just want to refill it with a little bit left in the bottom and then put a new tablet in it. That will mess up your concentration of chemicals.
2: Yes, and I think it also, when we think about how much fluid is in the bottle, is the bottle really a 550 ml bottle and the instructions are 500 ml of fluid? And so I think even if you don't measure every single time, you should know what's the fill line on the bottle so that we're all doing it the same. And I think people sometimes get frustrated in those details, but those details are really important when we're talking about chemical disinfection. Um, and so, again, I think for the person who's kind of starting this leg of their career, where they're meant to watch over that, very important that they know what they're looking at.
0: And, and even with that, there's a, a couple of points that um, I, I heard that are, could be important with this. Uh, the first one is Kate referencing over time how things change. And with that, With the disinfection, with the new um, processes that are are available, you know, how often should dental practices review what they do and what those processes are? So there's one opportunity. And then the second is the precision, the precision of certain amount of fluid to a certain amount of chemical and this is a great example, you know, sometimes I'm cooking a little extra butter, <laughs> it's going to make it even better. Um, a little bit extra, some of that bad stuff makes it e- taste that much better. This instance, not the case, right. uh, where you probably want it to be as precise as per the, the specifications as possible.
2: Excellent point, Dan. And I think, again, if you're taking over this role in the facility, it would be also interesting, go to the website for the vendor. Even if the person before you didn't have um, you know, good audit tools or good um, instructional videos or something, these vendors kind of continue to want to make their process better. And sometimes making the process better is training people in a more effective way. So look at what resources are available and say, hey, I've never seen this video before. Perhaps this is something we could watch at a staff meeting, etc." Um, are there worksheets that could go into a policy manual or a poster um, that we could put up to say, here's the steps for doing this process?
1: Yeah, so another preventative disinfection tool that is on the market are these waterline filter straws, and I'm not going to name any specific brands of them. There are a couple of different kinds, but these are an external... Water filter that you put right on the end of your intake pipe into your dental unit water line. So it stays inside the bottle of water. And they, most of them have some sort of combination of iodine and silver. So the iodine and the silver filter the water before it goes into your water line. And then they release particles of iodine and silver that also stay inside the water line with your water to help keep it disinfected and prevent that biofilm growth. So it's another way um, for that prevention part of things. The thing I really like about the straws is that you don't have to change them out with every refill of your bottle. They will generally last an average dental unit a year so it's a yearly change out change out once a year you don't have to worry about you know every morning putting the tablets in you don't have to worry about oh I have a half a bottle of water do I need to dump it you can just refill it with your filtered water so that is a fairly new product that I am really a fan
2: of I think as a person, like um, I'm a worst case scenario person, Sarah, I've been in too many outbreak scenarios where I've seen things break down. And so I agree that that process sounds like you're really reducing the chance for user error, right? The more often you need people to make a decision and to do a process, the more likely you are to have failure points in that process. With this, I'm looking online and learning about the product that you're talking about or that type of product. And the idea that it should last up to a year, again, I think it's important to go exactly to the instructions for use for every type of product you look at. And if it says 365 days, what's your process to ensure that occurs? So I would think, you know, we're going to put that on the calendar we're going to be marking our calendars for when we're going to order that product. So we're ready to change at the 365 day mark. And for some reason, if I'm out of the office, if I walk away from the practice, who takes over? So how many, we wanna make sure multiple people are competent in that process to make sure there's no misses. Yeah. And
3: most- Sarah, is the uh, uh, straw like a additive? uh, mechanism that you'd use in addition to the tablet method, or is it like an either-or?
1: It's an either-or. So the straw would replace the tablet. Yeah, and then to Kate's point, most of the straws that I've seen, they do have systems kind of in place already from the manufacturer to help you remember to change them out in a year. Like they come with stickers that you put the date on and you can stick it on your calendar. You can stick it on the water bottle. You can stick it on your dental unit. So there are opportunities to make that an easy
2: process. But as the person in charge of the program, you would wanna make sure you're selecting that and communicating that to other people. Maybe the physician, the dentist in the practice of, this is how we're marking, this is the expectation. This is what we'll be doing. Absolutely. With the straw mechanism, since you never, like it's a constant process, do they shock the water still or no? With the straw mechanism, you don't generally have to shock. So
1: with the straws, they recommend an initial shock. So like when you install it, Mm -hmm. and then when you test, if you have an operatory that comes back as a fail, right? You're above that 500 CFUs for that unit then you would shock again.
2: Okay.
1: Um, otherwise they recommend the shocking yearly. And I was just reading up on some of the improvements they've made to the straws. Um, one of them now has an initial shock chemical built into the cartridge. So when you plug it in, you run water through it and it's kind of like dyed blue. So, you know, the chemical is in the line. Okay. Then you let that sit overnight. And okay. you come back the next day, flush everything out until the water runs clear. And that was your shock treatment.
2: With a tablet shock, is it a similar process where you put it in and then like charge the lines and leave it overnight? It is. It's a very similar process. So you would mix the shock chemical in the bottle that
1: attaches to your unit. Um, the one, all the ones I've seen are bright pink. So it's very easy to see when the chemical is running through that water line, but you would run it through until your water runs pink, take your bottle off, you know, fill all your water lines with that and then let it sit overnight and then come back the next morning and flush it very well. Whatever the IFU say, some say five minutes that you want to flush it. So all of that chemical is out of the line.
2: So the person who's in charge of this in a practice, would it be there um, just in your experience, how people operationalize this is it kind of their job to plan when those shocks occur and then maybe they would have to stay extra one night to get the lines all charged and then come in early the next day to ensure that they chart, you know, run all the water dry.
1: Yeah, it does take some time. Um, I think something that people often forget is to grab all of the water lines. There are the obvious ones, right? Your air, water, syringe. But people often forget that there are water lines in handpiece hoses as well. And those water lines don't get used as often. So that water is sitting stagnant in the handpiece lines mm-hmm. more often than it is in your air water lines. So it's important to remember that those are water lines too and you need to shock and treat that water just like you do your air water syringe.
2: So if you were taking over this duty in a practice, you would wanna make sure that that was essentially mapped out where all the water lines are in all the operatories, probably giving them names and talking about, you know, the order in which you do that um, for every charge.
1: Yeah, yep, standardize the process, write it down, make it easy
2: for people to uh, do the right thing, right? Right, and so shocking has a lot to do with um, you, when we were talking about the straws, we talked about um, testing. Right, so testing is the way that we're gonna measure the efficacy of disinfection. We can either use a in-office test kit or we can send away the water for them to essentially culture it out to see if we're hitting that less than 500 CFU per ml. Um, I have to go back to the CDC tool to see how often that should be done.
1: So testing, so this is my opinion as an infection preventionist. The testing guidelines that are out there are not very directional.
2: Okay.
1: So the CDC says you should test at least quarterly. I personally feel that you should maybe test more often than that. Um, you know, it never hurts to test your water. You never know what's growing in it. When you do your um, initial Uh, Like a changeover in chemicals, if you're getting the straws, um, the manufacturer's instructions for a lot of the straws that come say you should test it every two weeks for the first two months to make sure that your straws are effective. And then after that, move to every other month. So um, there is some guidance as well from the FDA because the dental units themselves are considered medical devices. So the FDA recommends to test water according to the manufacturer of the dental unit. So reaching out to your dental reps, you know, if you have an ADEC dental unit, they will have testing recommendations for your
2: water lines. There's really a lot of
1: variability.
2: <laughs> the, the piece of equipment you're talking about specifically, is that like the hand piece or that is like the water treatment line, like the bottles and tubing manufacturer, what, what piece of equipment guides you on how often to test? So that piece of equipment is actually called a dental unit. So all of
1: the, the self contained water bottle, all of the tubing that the hand pieces connect to that the suctions connect to it's all considered one piece of equipment. Okay. And that manufacturer will have their IFUs for that piece of equipment on waterline testing and the best type of filtered water to use in it. Um, if you use distilled water in your water lines, you probably shouldn't do that. It can actually corrode metals in there and cause issues, which is not really an infection control bacterial growth issue, but it can also clog your water lines.
2: Right. And so for the new person who's coming in the dental unit itself, they would be able to find that Like, they would look at that piece of equipment and they would say like, what's the name on it? They could use like a manufacturer number or something like that. If that is not already part of the process, that's where they should go. Find out the name of the dental unit and look up on, and you would look in that IFU for like a, you said under the section for like maintenance or waterline treatment. Yes. I'm taking notes, Sarah. That's very helpful. No problem. Okay. And in there, it would tell you frequency and say you were making the case to the office manager or the dentist in the practice of, Hey, we've only been doing this quarterly. And I just found out we're actually supposed to be doing it more frequently. That's going to be a cost, right? And so that would be something we would, you would have to kind of, put together your information and take it to the doctor and say, or the office manager and say, hey, this is where we're at. This is what I've done. This is kind of the next steps we need to take. Yeah, doing those
1: cost analyses is really important, especially if you get in a a really small private practice where you pay attention to your overhead. Yep, Making a big change like that can have an impact on the business. Absolutely. Right.
2: So it's a matter of... um, generating some buy-in, you know, you want to make sure other people are on board with the process, setting it up correctly. And it might seem overwhelming, but that instructions for use on those things are, that's your source of truth.
0: Yes. And especially as Dr. Hankins had referenced some of the nasty things that come out, get dent can be derived from poor maintenance. There's a huge opportunity cost for not doing the right thing. So, going back to even the, the original question, here's a great opportunity, great opportunity to inventory all of the water lines, inventory everything that that needs to be completed, speak with the manufacturer, look up the, the, the proper uh, way to maintain and the frequency, and prepare a, a case for how things should be improved. Excellent
2: points,
1: Dan. Yeah, I'll also mention you know, maintenance of that equipment is really important in general. And the tubing that is on that is not meant to last forever. So there is a a recommended time that that should be replaced
2: just because it's measured in like months or years, Sarah, generally,
1: I think it's generally a few years. Okay. It's not like super often. Okay. Um, you know, unless you have something happen where you get a, a major crack in one and you need to replace it because of that. But your, your manufacturer rep should be able to um, help you determine, you know, has it been 10 years since you replaced that tubing? Right. Do we need to think about, you know, just replacing it all across the board?
2: Right. And so that's something, as the person in charge of this program, not only would you be probably looking at training and competency of the people who do the tasks day to day, But if we do the water testing, when we do the water testing and we get a positive result back, what are the next steps? And so you're talking about, we've had essentially a treatment failure. What are some possible next steps? Is it, we might need to look at tubing instead. And so that, I will assume that that might be in like a troubleshooting guide in your instructions for use. A vendor might be a helpful person, but this is also something that the provider in the clinic is they have to have eyes on this process. So you'll want to be working through with the it's the dentist in the facility, wouldn't it be? Or yeah. how do you the, do?
1: the owner, whoever the, the owner. owner is. Okay. okay.
0: And documenting when items were replaced mm-hmm. and then scheduling when they need to be replaced, as per again, the manufacturer's recommendations or specifications.
2: And to some degree, like when we do things right, when we follow all of our proper maintenance procedures, that helps with warranty. So if you have equipment that's under warranty, that's a big thing in hospital infection prevention is when we choose disinfectants and we, we have to make sure our processes are not only in line with what's required from an infection prevention perspective, but we wanna make sure we're following manufacturer directions so that we can maintain warranties where it's possible so that we don't run into unanticipated replacement costs.
1: Yeah, nobody likes those unanticipated replacement costs. It sucks when they sneak up on you, for sure. So today we talked about maintenance and testing of water lines. And next time we will dig into what to do if you have a failed water line. There are a lot of things that can happen and it's important to know what you're going to do in those situations.
0: That was an excellent conversation about water lines and cleaning and maintenance. And we all look forward to the second continuing episode to talk about now, what do you do when there's a problem? So I want to thank uh, the ever awesome Sarah Stream, Kate Tyner, and Dr. Richard Hankins for bringing us all of this information. Uh, We look forward to providing more information in the next podcast. Thank you for spending time with us learning about infection prevention and control in the dental setting. If you have questions you would like the team to chat about, feel free to call our ICAP Infection Control Hotline at 402-552-2881 or visit our website at icap.nebraskamed.com. Look for our next Mouthy IP Podcast episode and don't forget to stay chatty about infection control in your office.